0: Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and I'm not joined by Sam Backer today. Instead, we decided to reach into our archive and drop you a rerun episode of a pod that we recorded just about a year ago to the date on the environmental impact of music Asking the question, how is music made? Not how do record companies work, but how is actually physical material of music made? And what is its impact? And as you'll learn, streaming and the cloud-based services, not so environmentally friendly as you might think. Uh, We kind of wanted to do this for a couple of reasons. We just felt like it was a really great episode that we continue to talk about to this day. And then, of course, obviously, with all the climate conversations that are constantly going on, it's easy to overlook the fact that actually things like cloud-based streaming services do have a pretty negative impact on the environment. Additionally, it was an early episode, and obviously our listenership has grown a bit since then, and so we thought it might be good to go ahead and bring this one back. So you'll be hearing um, a conversation that uh, Sam and I had with musicologists at the University of Oslo and writer Kyle Devine, who wrote a book called Decompose, The Political Ecology of Music, We'll be back next week, and we got a lot of great things coming your way. As you know, we do this pro bono, and we always want to bring you really well-researched, thought-out content. And sometimes that doesn't match up with an easy schedule of dropping every other week. But we didn't want to leave you with nothing to listen to, and we think this is a really great episode that we really wanted to uh, kind of bring back out of the archive and, and put a new light on. So, Enjoy. Today we will be talking, actually Sam will be talking to Kyle Devine, who is the head of research and associate professor in the Department of Musicology at the University of Oslo. Sick job. Uh, He wrote a book called Decomposed, The Political Ecology of Music, and Sam will be talking to him about that, and you're probably wondering what the hell is political ecology and what does it have to do with music and has to do with material things how things are made, and how you're buying them, and how it's ruining people's lives. Is that, is that about right? That's about right. <laughs> so maybe to start, let's just go ahead and like talk about what we mean by the political ecology of music and like what this book is about, just so people know, we can kind of like create a sort of foundation for what we're about to talk about and then what the interview is about.
1: Yeah, so the political ecology of music is just this idea that to really understand how music works... You can't just look at the art. You can't even just look at the record industry. You have to understand the the complete process by which music is created. And that means the the least explored part of that is the, the physical production processes, the interactions with nature that actually create the material things that we listen to music on. So that's like... The guitar, the amp, everything. Yeah. So like the petro like the the pumps that pump the oil out of Texas or out of Saudi Arabia the ships that that oil is brought to America with the factories that take the crude oil and turn it into plastics right all of that is part of the political ecology of music and and the idea of a political ecology of music and, and what this book traces is really looking at the various kinds of commodity production systems that shaped the music industry from its beginning as a mass industry to the present day. And Kyle, really briefly, he kind of talks about it as three big phases. Phase one is like 1890 to 1940, 1950. That's shellac. It's uh, made out of beetles from India and limestone from Indiana. Um, Then there's the plastics era That's made from like oil And then that makes CDs And it makes tapes And it makes vinyl records They're all made from plastic Which is a petrochemical And then um, the modern form of music Is, is, uh, you know, it's data But no, it's not It's the internet infrastructure Right, so that's the Yeah, there's
0: an infrastructure (laughs) Behind your cloud
1: Yeah, like there's a server farm somewhere There's rare earth Metals that are required to hold that data there's miners who have to dig through 60 tons of rock i think to create the to gather the minerals for one iphone there's a really intense material process of production and this book kind of talks through all of those and thinks about what is the music industry what does music look like if instead of not even just like not foregrounding that stuff, but like literally never considering that stuff. What happens if we expand what music is to include all of that?
0: Yeah, and if we're if, if we are a podcast about music and capitalism, oftentimes we discuss things, you know, like around say the systems of royalties and distribution when it comes to money and how it like it affects, you know, the various players from the musician to the venue owner. But, you know, if we're going to actually truly suss out music and capitalism, we have to do that, too. We have to take like a wider like look outside of the borders and start thinking about the things that I think a lot of music fans don't think about, like where that Stratocaster is made and what resources it uses and where that vinyl record is made and and aspects like aspects like that and how it like, you know,
1: may pollute the earth or may, you know, (laughs) not not may, dude, not may. Does right, And that's one of the things that's just like, it does. That vinyl record is made of plastic. It's not a special magical kind of plastic. It's plastic like all the other kinds of plastics. It's made from petrochemicals and it 100% does pollute the earth. And if it's a record that is new, like when you go to record store day to support your local record shop, that pl- those records are almost certainly made in these shady ass factories. The vinyl for them is made in these shady factories in Vietnam with very little over environmental oversight.
0: Yeah. And like, you know, sit tight here a little bit, you know, we're, we're not saying we're not here to, you know, to, to drop an episode on you to make you feel guilty for being a consumer, because unfortunately like there's no escaping that in this uh, society in which we exist in this world we exist in. And so we don't want you to, you know, uh, we're not doing this to make you feel guilty, but rather to just like to to be aware of, everything that's at play and we'll talk about more and you talk about in your interview uh, why that's important and how to hold those two things in your head or those multiple things in your head and not you know suddenly feel an enormous amount of guilt for buying you know the latest Taylor Swift record or something Uh, which I'm sure is on vinyl because that that goes with the aesthetic right
1: oh yeah, yeah for folklore yeah definitely one of the things I felt that that really made me appreciate this approach to music was some of the clear like, historical benefits that thinking this way brings with it, right? Like, you and I have talked a bunch about how, in some ways, the music industry is, today, is the same music industry with many of the same players that it was in the 20s and 30s. And that's true on one level, but one thing that Kyle's work, I think, really pushes back on on that narrative is is he says, quite rightly, I think, that if you think about the record industry as an industry, as a complete industry, from where the products come from to the final distribution, then actually the record industry changes completely, basically. Or more than half the industry totally changes in the 50s when they move from shellac to vinyl and when it becomes another petrochemical industry like uh, <laughs>
0: Exxon. Yeah, and that's an interesting part of his, of his book that reveals that shellac was actually made with lac beetles in taken from India and then like processed in India and in these like really horrible factory situations that he also mentions at some point
1: they're like the worst they're the worst factories in India in the early 20th century like consistently
0: yeah basically sweatshops basically and that's and that's what like that's what like you know say a blues or a jazz 78 if it was made out of shellac, like it came out of those conditions.
1: Well, he actually says it's interesting. um, It's not just that. It's shellac from abused workers in India. But most of 78 records are made with a mixture of stuff, and a lot of it is Indiana limestone. Indiana, in the Great Depression, lost most of its heavy manufacturing. The unions folded up, so all the record companies could come there, open these absolutely terrible mines, pay next to nothing because everyone was hungry for a job, Totally crush the unions and get the li- Indiana limestone um, to make the records, and that's why, actually why a lot of record factories, it turns out, are in Indiana because the limestone was really good in the shellac era.
0: Well, so this brings me this brings me to a point. I mean, the history obviously traces how music became a physical. Object and a commodity, which we now just accept, it is like the norm. Even as we move more into digital, and like you, you two talk about that, and you know, maybe we can talk about it a little bit as well. But why do you feel this is like a conversation that isn't necessarily discussed when it comes to like music, like the the materials, or like how it's a commodity, or like where the commodity came from, or the the, the the environment in which it came out of. Like these things don't really seem to to be, you know, they're very like bottom level sort of conversation, like you know, many levels deep when people people want to sort of discuss the various workings of the music industry.
1: That's a really good question. I mean me and Kyle talk about this a little bit in the interview. And part of it I think is, is about the nature of music as a commodity. And you know, so much of what we talk about here is that the complexities of music as this particularly strange commodity. We talk about how it's an imperfect commodity because, in some levels, it's more valuable than the amount of money it ever gets for it. We talk about it as this weird commodity that has to circulate beyond its sale in order, you know, like you have to hear the pop song in order to want to buy the pop song. But also, and, and I think Kyle makes this point, is that it's really a near perfect commodity because it does what all commodities do which is to take the nature of the labor that goes in their production and then completely hide that and then give the physical object attributes of its own right basically it makes the record seem like independent like the commodity form can make a record seem like an independent thing that like exists as a given in the world and and that's really true right like if you think about all the vinyl fetishism of the last like 30 years, the idea of like records as natural things and like, no, of course, that's not true. It's and part of that's because it's a commodity, right? No, I think that that's a great point. I mean, you know,
0: Benjamin was you know attempting, uh, you know, I think in his arcades project to write about this idea of the commodity as like a poetic object that kind of synthesizes the meaning of a poet and capital alike. And I couldn't help but think about how that sort of idea can be reflected here on so many different levels when it comes to music and the record and recorded music in a sense that it's a commodity. It's meant to be sold. It's wrapped up in this whole system. And yet we sort of inject a sort of amount of emotion, fetishism, as you want to put it, into this commodity itself, kind of, creating this almost, like, myth around it as well as, like, you know, something that, you know, that that kind of almost represents something beyond ourself and our, like, day-to-day sort of, like, worries. And, like, I think in tying that sort of empathy or that emotion or that fetishism with, like, with the commodity, like, our approach to music or, like, music collecting becomes something more than just, like, passive consumerism. And, you know, I've always... I've always actually had a problem with this where seeing, growing up, you know, working at record stores, everybody knows that guy who, like, you know, his record collection defines his identity. <laughs> and, I mean, this doesn't mean that you have, like, a large record collection. I mean, it's like this defines the guy's identity. Or you, we've all been at a party with someone who... You know, we'll talk ad nauseum about music. Yeah, Sam showed me on it his his massive record collection, but I don't think the record collection defines you. You're a PhD. You're 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 like a historian. <laughs> like, yes, you enjoy it, but it doesn't like define who you are. But I mean, the the pullback here is it's just that is that I think there's a certain amount of myth making, a certain kind of like woo woo ness that goes into music because you know it makes us feel things it we want to be a part of it we want to like reach out and like you know be in it you know but then like that is then projected upon the sort of commodity itself of music and so like we don't want to think about or if we do think about these things then well it's somehow excusable or we kind of put it aside because it's music you know the capital m
1: yeah and and it's and i think that kyle would say that that It's just, I mean, like, I was gonna say, like, isn't that cool? But, like, no, but, like, seriously, it's it's, like... it's
0: not, no, it's not cool. I mean, you're basically, you know, you're transforming human relations, you know, human relationships into, like, a, you know, a relationship to, like, things. And, I mean, I think if we, like, pull that thread, it becomes, you know, the total process from whatever factory or, like, more, maybe a better way to put it today is, like, you know, wherever the, you know, server, the massive server system is in, like, whatever, like, rural Utah or something you know, that spins and all the cables involved, the energy gets involved, and we decide to, like, stream that latest Taylor Swift album on, like, Spotify, you know, the characteristics of this structure, I think, become completely obscured by this sort of emotional connection to these, like, essential objects that I'm talking about. And, and I think that in, in sort of the process of, like, a sort of, like, a mass consumerism and like these sort of like ha- these habits all becoming like automatic and like automation just becoming like the thing of the you know what what we all do that we just kind of it's a it's like there's so many different layers so many different curtains that are masking this and i think that like e- like not only like an emotional like myth making level but then also now the fact that like we don't actually have like the physical record anymore oftentimes like i'm obviously like turning more towards streaming now that like you know i literally press a single button and like, it's easy to think, oh well, like it, the 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 traces of that manufacturing that led the the and the sort of materials that are used or the psychology of music maybe that go are involved in like streaming, and like the servers and the cables and the satellites and everything whatever however you know it, it's so removed it's so masked you know so you put all these things together and and because it's music we you know we think about maybe more surface level things. Like how does a musician get paid or like Fiona Apple got a 10.0, you know, it's like this, it's, it's like, it's almost like this, uh, it's, it's what's it's music itself has taken on like a sort of other characteristic in, in society that we hold special and dear and have emotion towards and added to all the other things covers
1: this all up. It's like Oz. It's like Oz behind the curtain. You don't, you don't want music to be another, just another shitty thing that's made through a shitty process that's killing the only earth that we have. And, I mean, I think that... But, it's,
0: but I think the important thing is is that it's, a tie- it's tying that sort of emotionality or whatever you want to call it, you know, fetishism or whatever, to the commodity. You know, where... And I'm not trying to, like, fetishize an older time, but if you think back to, like, whatever, the 1800s, it's like that same emotional connection to music was probably still there, but it wasn't tied around... A physical object or a commodity It was tied around Going to the bar or like going to the opera You know where it was like this One time sort of physical like the live event You know so there wasn't like and I think that's interesting Is that somehow these This total process of like capitalism has like has injected that into like the physical object itself, or or you know maybe not so much a physical object anymore. Although you know we can get into like vinyl fetishism, but even like playlists now or Spotify or like whatever you know. However, which is still like as you you two get into, is still built upon all this material and all these systems which are like harmful to the world and like screwing over manufacturers in terrible situations in like rural China and so on. Yeah,
1: and and, and I guess it's also I mean I'm thinking about like what the benefit of thinking through those commodity chains can be. Because, I mean, I actually think that this book has, like, a real moral charge that I'm still working through in my head, I think.
0: And it sounds like from your interview, like, maybe Kyle's been sort of accused of that sort of, like, moral charge in maybe a negative way that he was somewhat quick to maybe try to play down or defend a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I, but I, I think the thing is that like, what's the benefit of really focusing on the kinds of commodity chains and the kinds of production chains that create something like music? And for one, I think it keeps your eyes open to all kinds of exploitation um, that can easily get hidden, like you're saying, Saxon. But also, and, and I mean, just trying to square a circle of like, right, you don't want to say, don't listen to music. But also, you don't want to say ignore the harm that music is doing to the world, and I guess the to me, the or like thing don't that- be
0: like a weirdo who's like I only go to see live music or something, <laughs> which is actually would be cool in a weird, funny sense. But like, we're not saying that either, you know. Like, spin your Spotify knew, like playlist,
1: right? You know. I actually knew a I knew a um, uh, when I was in college, like a, there was like a music Ph.D. student who like decided like i knew him for a couple years and he decided at one point he's like i'm done with recorded music i'm only (laughs) i'm only listening live i'm only doing live music if i can't hear it live i'm not i'm just i know so i was not gonna do it i i know i know
0: someone who i respect and like very dearly and he'll probably know the reference but he, I'll, I'll, I won't say his name, but I'll say I know, he writes a lot about jazz. He knows a lot about jazz, and he told me that he doesn't really listen to jazz on record. He almost exclusively l- listens to it live, which I thought
1: was actually pretty badass. But, but, So I guess I think the way, to me, you square the circle is a kind of like historical reflexivity that I think is not just important here, but that is important in all sorts of circumstances as people try all different kinds of projects to make a better world, it's like I live in New York City and New York City exists because of an act of genocide, right? The only thing I can do, like I can't fix what happened. I mean, my ancestors weren't even in the US yet, I but I benefit from it. I can't fix what happens. I can only A, be aware of it, and then try, A, be aware of it, and B, try to integrate that awareness into what I'm doing going forward to try to create, like, a more just, more equitable, more sustainable world. And I feel like we listen to music, I guess, like there's an endless amount of music, like it's free, like there's no cost to music. And we talk a lot about the ways in which the fact that music can feel like there's no cost to it clearly has screwed over musicians but also it's screw it's destroying the earth and like if this makes you think about and integrate into a broader set of activities and orientations and ways of thinking like shit like this stuff isn't free like spotify isn't free like cd none of this is like more is like it's like it's like there's no there's no mu- moral purity out there. You're not going to find the thing that like makes you a good person. You're always going to be in this like fucked up world of like <laughs> uh compromises and gray areas and and shitty situations and you got to make the best of it you can. And if that like can come out of an engagement with music, that seems like a good thing
0: to. Yeah, me. I agree. I think the moral imperative jumping off of what you were saying there is then being aware. And you know we emphasize. There's obviously been a a heavy struggle over the last, let's say about four years. I'll let the listeners put that together. About truth and like particularly in the media. And if you value that, then I think living with that truth, like the one you're talking about, and you know that maybe could be sort of the moral imperative is like being aware of these things, being aware that you you cannot do anything about it. You're stuck in this system. And no amount of like not buying music or spinning music and like only going to see live music is going to prevent these systems from continually continuing to happen i mean that maybe that's obvious to a lot of people, but just to reemphasize that and and i think that I think that also it kind of it it pushes through the those sort of like we were talking about oz and like the curtains it kind of like pushes through those levels where it's easy to stop at you know let's not even say the extreme of this you know supposed person that we're making up here who like you know decides to like stop streaming or like buying music but it also just showcases the sort of what's lacking when we then take pride in certain things like oh i buy vinyl because it supports like indie labels and the only remain you know one of the last remaining small industries in america which is like vinyl production or I buy, like, small business, you know, start small business campaigns or I'm buying a set of, like, $400 speakers to help, <laughs> to help, you know, <laughs> the artist out. Reference back to the last episode if you didn't listen to it. You know, and I think that that kind of goes into what I was saying earlier where, like, you know, the systems are, div- are, are created in a way where, like, you buying something, participating in this, participating in this, in buying a commodity or, like, streaming something, which, you know, as everything we just said – has this whole production system in line, they're actually, the systems make you feel good about that because it does help or seem to help someone on a kind of a smaller level. But like, as you said, there's never any kind of, there's always dirt on everybody's hands, but we were like born into this dirt and we can't really escape it. You know, and I think that that's like an important point that you and Kyle talk about a little bit. It's just, you know, you can't really escape it. And, you know, the most moral thing it seems like you could do if that's what you're concerned about is to just sort of hold these things, these two things in your head at once or the multiple issues. And, you know, if there ever is a sort of like crack in the door or an opening for a possible real change or the prevention of any kind of like oppression that you actually you could put energy towards and like help or fix or whatever, then you're aware of it. It's just kind of like walking through the world, like being aware and like knowing that. But it's also just, I think, stepping back from stepping back from what we're talking about here, I think it's just really a very interesting aspect of music that's like not talked about and you know on a historical level on a production level and that's why we, you decided to talk to this guy and the interview you're about to hear yeah so here's sam's interview with kyle devine head of research and associate professor in the department of musicology at the university of oslo and they'll be talking about his book decomposed the political ecology of music enjoy
2: try not. To think so much about The truly staggering amount Of oil that it takes to make a record All the shipping, the vinyl, the cellophane lining, the high gloss
1: tape and the gear. Kyle, uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, for being on. Thanks.
2: It's really good to be here.
1: You know, as a show, we talk a lot about music as a commodity, but often in the kind of amorphous way. But you bring a whole host of very specific actors and agents and say that they're just as much part of music as anything else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I that's the conclusion that I came to through the, through working on the book is that, um, you know, a person who presses the record or a person who, you know, pulls the stuff out of the ground that is required to make a record. I mean, those people are obviously doing a different kind of work and working with different kinds of, of stuff uh, and in different systems than more obviously musical situations. But they are, you know, on some level, every bit as central to a musical situation, right, so this is, uh, this is why, for me, thinking about music in terms of political ecology involves uh, sort of looking at what I called its staple commodities and its supporting casts
1: by staple, could you expand on that a little bit?
2: This is an idea for me that partly goes back to a, a early communication scholar called Harold Innes. Um, Harold Innes wrote about, you know, the role of what he called staple commodities in, you know, the emergence of nations and economies and things like that. So, you know, uh, beaver pelts uh, were staple commodities in the development of Canada and things like this. And so I started to try and think about, well, what would the history of recording be like if we thought about it in these ways? And it turns out that. Basically, the way things break down is that between 1900 and 1950, the main, the most important the kind of staple commodity of recorded music was something called shellac, which is, which is a, a resin derived from the activity of insects. And mainly those insects for the record industry were located in India. So that shellac is a staple commodity between 1900 and 1950. And then from 1950 to 2000, the staple commodity of the recorded music industry is plastic. So LPs, uh, 45s, cassettes, and CDs, they're all made of plastic. And then since around the year 2000, more and more people, of course, have started downloading and streaming music. And so in a sense, the staple commodity of of, uh, the recorded music industry becomes data.
1: And so for these staple commodities, in some ways, because they're so important, the entire production structure and the set of social arrangements that go with that kind of get wrapped around the unique, I guess, almost like determining force of what it requires to produce these stable commodities and what it requires to distribute them or manufacture them.
2: Yeah, that's right. So during this sort of shellac era, if we want to call it that, in the history of recorded music, I mean you had people in India going out to gather this resin, bringing it to factories. Um, and then people worked, of course, in the factories to process it. And then it was shipped out uh, across the world to places like the US, where it was then mixed with uh, you know, a variety of other ingredients and then sent out again around the world to, you know well, or at least around the local area to record shops and things like that.
1: Before we move on from Shellac, I-, I think, I mean, this is one of the, the many kind of, mind blowing smaller revelations within like the broader aha moment that i got from from reading and engaging with this book um and I had no idea and i think many people who n- know what a seventy eight is and know about shellac records had no idea that it uh that it comes from a from a a beetle right
2: yeah absolutely so i mean shellac is a really really it's been used for a long time and it's a widely used material. you'll know about you know you see shellac at nail salons, shellac is in furniture varnish um, it's sometimes used in in food applications I think so it's been around a really long time and essentially what happens is there are these little red beetles called lac beetles, and as part of their reproductive cycle they uh, the female lac beetles lay. Well, they coat tree branches in a kind of sticky resin, a little bit like sap. Um, and they lay their eggs in that sap and the eggs eventually hatch, but the sap is then hardened and it's left behind. And I you know, pretty pretty quickly I guess people found out that if you if you bashed this resin off of the branches and processed it in certain ways, it was pretty useful for a lot of different uh, applications.
1: And then they process it in India?
2: Yeah, a lot of the initial processing or some of the initial processing would happen in places like Calcutta, where... So if it would be like poor rural Indians um, who would be gathering the shellac and then they would bring it to factories in various locations. And and it's interesting, right? Because we're talking about, you know, we're talking about these beetles. We're talking about this natural bioplastic. And bioplastic is kind of all the rage... uh, Right now, uh, we're talking about uh, plastic that is natural, that is renewable, that is biodegradable, and all of these things. And so, I think it'd be tempting to think maybe we should be making records out of this this miracle material again. And you know, I think there's a certain amount of appeal to that idea, and some some people are drawn to it. But if you go back and you look at the conditions of the factories and and the ways that these workers were treated. Um, I mean, there's a government of India labor report that was published in uh, 1946, which didn't pull any punches. It described the shellac industry as among the worst industries in India. Its workers were some of the lowest paid. There, there were laws against uh, child labor, but those laws were openly disregarded in the shellac industry. Uh, and, and yeah, the, the report pulled no punches. It, it called it a sweatshop industry, essentially
1: yeah that's extraordinary. I mean, you know we're used to often thinking of the record industry as an extractive industry in a in a cultural sense you know um going to Mississippi, recording blues artists, getting copyright on those recordings, selling it back to the area without you know very little concern for cultural patrimony or um proper compensation, but then the actual physical discs that are being those songs are being pressed on are also the result of an extractive labor process remarkably and and, and, um, a a remarkably violent extractive labor process.
2: Yeah. It's certainly not always very, very kind and very even handed. Um, And that's, I mean, that's another kind of thing that I I was, you know, I think thinking in terms of political ecology helps, you know, people who like music or study music or, or, Make money from music to to understand is that yeah you're totally right, you know we are familiar with thinking about music as as a kind of extractive cultural force and an extractive industry, um, in the sense of of yeah not just going to you know record the blues but even in India itself there was you know a tradition of going there to you know extract influence and and revitalise your own compositional practice or. Uh, to yeah, go there and record songs to sell them locally and in other markets, but with you know the parent global northern record companies keeping most of the profits. But there is also at the same time, you know this this other ex- form of extraction that's maybe less familiar for some music scholars or music fans to think about, but which is you know very familiar for people who are thinking about um, you know the problems of of global industrial relations and things like that.
1: So then in the post-war era, as the record industry switches away from shellac and towards vinyl, kind of in the form of long playing records and 45s that represents a major shift to petrochemicals, right? Which again, is this, in a in a world of kind of vinyl as authenticity um, it's it was a stark reminder that these are plastics that are just that, that carry with them all the attendant problems of any other kind of plastic really
2: yeah i think so i mean this is this is always a good time for me to to remind myself and remind our wonderful listeners that that the purpose of of the purpose of none of the research that I've done is to make individual people feel guilty about buying records or loving records or having a record collection, right? Sometimes, (laughs) you know, people, you know, they they hear about this stuff and they think, oh my gosh, you know, first it was, first I had to replace all my light bulbs and then I had to think about an electric car and then i had to buy my coffee in a certain way and now my music too are you kidding me <laughs> um and reminding myself and and others who are interested in this about the, some of these kind of inglorious realities of the vinyl that all these records are made out of i think can do something other i think you can do something more productive than make people feel guilty or or, or monitor their own consumption habits right and I think it's it's opening us up to a bigger story and you know we know some of the realities of plastic about about you know carbon emissions and we know about plastics pollution to some degree now and and you know all those records are are wrapped up in these stories I,
1: re- I really love that I mean it, to me it, it's profoundly anti-romantic with like a big R <laughs> That instead of yeah. having this astonishing music, kind of just float in the ether towards us, you know, like this kind of these magic voices on this uh, magic object, it's like no, the object comes from somewhere. It has its own material histories that ha- that have that are like you said, like part of part of the overall enjoyment and experience of music. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's it's. It's not I, for me. I would say it's not just a part of the overall enjoyment and experience of music. It is the enjoyment and overall experience of music that is a significant factor in, you know, creating and sustaining and growing the industries that that are wrapped up in those broader sort of industrial and social relations. Right. So this is all. Um, you know this is a function of the fact that we love music and
1: and again it's it, particularly in in the kind of the fetishism of vinyl and the physicality of vinyl it's also part of the aesthetic appeal of the things they you know once you say it it's it's you know kind of like bakelite has been you know revamped as this like mid-century design you know bakelite light switches or whatever Uh, mid-century design like high point of certain kinds of american industrial design and it's true part of the you know i think that records are beautiful and part of that is that yeah they are these delicately molded plastic things it's right there in the physicality of it yeah no i mean i
2: agree right i happen to i'm not a huge a huge record collector but i certainly have a few records and as a musician put out music on vinyl and cd um So, yeah, I mean, I totally understand the draw of these things, in a yeah, in a deeply personal way.
1: So the final chapter of this kind of tripartite uh, schema for understanding the, you know, the staple commodity, the central commodity of of the music industry is data. And and there I think you do just a really fabulous job of pushing back against a a techno-utopian rhetoric of lack of friction, of lack of physicality, of, um, you know, uh, the ephemerality of digital files. I mean, maybe techno-utopian is not quite the right word because it's also techno-dystopian. There's been this discourse about the disappearing of music, how by making music digital somehow that the physicality that, that grounded it in our lives and our lived experiences and our social realities is going to be absent. But you could have point out, like, no, an, uh, an iPhone is also a physical thing it's just as much a physical thing as, as a vinyl record is.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's, it's really common. Maybe it's changing now, but I think it has been really common for, you know, to, to hear the common. I, well, okay, so take, take this example. I think it's, it's incredibly common now, not just in the rec- recording industry, but, but many cultural industries, to pitch the physical against the digital, right? Vinyl record is physical, Now we live in a digital world. And I think that 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 way of talking about this, while, of course, I understand the the sort of shorthand convenience of it, I think it really seriously misrepresents what's going on. And uh, because exactly as you say, I mean, an iPhone is nothing if not a physical device. And when people pick up their iPhone and, and sort of point to the sky and say they get all their music from the cloud now, well that's a really incongruous gesture right and the same the same goes you know for all of our headphones and routers and cables and laptops and desktops and you know all all of that stuff data sticks for those uh, places that still use them very commonly And that's not even to mention the the networks of of storage, processing, transmission, and and sort of user end networks that are required to, to get this data to your phone or to your computer. So it's 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 material almost every step of the way, unless you know satellites come into play in certain ways. But for the most part, I mean, if you're listening to to a streaming service on your computer, a lot of the time. The only part of that that is that is wireless from a server farm somewhere to your computer is probably the distance between your laptop and your router. The rest of it is no, is no. Wired. You're,
1: you're totally right. I mean, I, I was wondering what, like, what you think that does. Like, why is that rhetoric that it's, it's so falsifiable? Why it's been such an important part of the the experience of digital music? Maybe.
2: Well, that's I mean, that's a really interesting point that that the rhetoric of dematerialization is itself, you know, a, a part of of the material experience of digital music, which is a kind of interesting, um, interesting contradiction. But I mean, other, other people have done a lot of work talking about how digital did the digital music commodity was made um, and sold and, and invented and and wrapped up in blankets of, of rhetoric and and talk and things like that. Um, but I think that's, I mean, that's, that's how it happened, right? It's in, it's in, it's in the interest of people who want to sell you a new product to listen to music in a somewhat new way to emphasize the fact that you don't need wires on your headphones anymore or the fact that, you know, a billion songs fits in your pocket now. Uh, And things like that. These are, these are, these are sales pitches Um, and tech, tech industries are, are, you know, really good at (laughs) highlighting the novelty of things, making, making us feel like we need new things all the time. And, and, and really, I mean, this is the story of the story of, 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 many commodities, right? Like it's not unique to the music commodity, the recorded music commodity. Most commodities, you know, function by concealing the fact that they are systemized collections of materials and labors and actions of various sorts, right? So this is, in a sense, this is just the logic of the commodity, full stop.
1: Absolutely, (laughs) though I wonder, you know, the idea of the factory was very important to Ford. And the idea of the server farm is in some ways, it seemed to me antithetical to the, I don't know, the rhetorical or aesthetic structure of of Google, for instance.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's really interesting. That would be really interesting to think about. Although at the same time, you know, as pressure increased on these, these massive companies to, you know, sort of Show what it was really like. I mean, it, now it is a part of the Google aesthetic to periodically give peeks, you know, at their server farms and show that you know all of the the piping and and cooling systems are painted in like the fun Google colors and, and things well, like that.
1: I, I haven't this. seen that. That doesn't that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, it's also this when when things like that start happening, I start to wonder about you know companies demystifying themselves as a complicated sort of double act of mystification yeah
1: it's it's like when the brands debate on twitter like at some point a brand is obviously not a person and have a brand dramatized as a person reveals the falsity of branding (laughs) but also it still works (laughs) but but also kind of focusing more in on the kind of physical realities of digital music, a really kind of distressing part of this book for me and for everyone who's listening to a podcast that they've downloaded from the internet is just how, for something that is sold or a package, just immaterial, how immaterial and, and how polluting this um, this digital musical economy is.
2: Yeah, so it's it's worth emphasizing that of course if you if we were gonna put your podcast out on an LP and people were gonna to drive to stores to get it and it was gonna be made out of vinyl and, and, and all of these things, c- comparing that act to them downloading and streaming it is is no comparison at all. Right? It's obviously much sort of lighter. Uh, or much less materially intense for you or I to download a podcast or an album or a song or, or to stream one, right? The one-to-one comparison, in other words, you know, is, is what makes, is what makes some of the claims in the book, I think counterintuitive, which is that if you look at, if you try and compare streaming to the plastic era or the height of the cassette, the CD and the, and the LP, it's very possible that, that the recording industry nowadays is responsible for higher greenhouse gas emissions or greenhouse equivalents than it was when it sold more obviously tangible formats, right? It's it's because the one to one comparison is no comparison at all, um, and that but the one comp- to one comparison sort of misses the point for me in some ways because the the, the comparison isn't actually a one-to-one comparison. It's one where you have to take the sheer amount that people are capable of of streaming and and listening to podcasts and music and all and watching YouTube. I didn't study podcasts or YouTube, but I think you would say similar things about them. The sheer amount that people are able uh, and willing to do those things now is what means that even if on a one-to-one level, a, uh, streaming an album will say much less materially intense than, than listening to that same album on an LP. When you scale up all of the streaming that goes on, even that reduction in the material intensity of a streamed audio file, when you pile it up and and think about billions and billions of people doing it all the time, that's when the different picture emerges.
1: It's interesting. I couldn't couldn't help but thinking about the arguments about user-centric streaming as you're describing that, which is that in addition, you know, that cultural balances of power also shift with these different kinds of distribution forms that a teenager buying a record and a, Adult buying record who will listen to that record different amounts of times, most likely, is the same amount of physical commodity purchase. But in some ways, in, in a very interesting way, a, a, a teenager streaming a little Lucy Vert song a thousand times not only you know invokes that commodity st- chain a thousand times but is credited by the system that way as well right right which
2: is a really interesting and well-known problem in the history of recorded music charts is that yeah they tracked sales but they could never track listens and another another really interesting thing about that and and uh, be, I hope I'm forgiven for forgetting the names of these researchers but there was a pair of researchers in the UK who published in in a a sort of uh, popular science-y sort of publication called The Conversation. And they had calculated something like if you were going to stream an album more than 20 or 40 times or something like that, it was actually better to buy it on CD.
1: Which is astonishing, actually. I don't think anyone who streams music thinks of it that way.
2: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're discouraged, actually, from from thinking of it in that way, right? You know what you're talking about about invoking the infrastructure a thousand times is this model of unending consumption. you know the consumption doesn't stop when you buy the record it it's just any time you want to listen to it, it has to go on, and that's some other people have written about this unending cultural consumption that comes with you know streaming services and subscriptions and things and and what we're talking about here is that that model of unending cultural consumption is a, is in effect a model of unending energy consumption.
1: Yeah, and 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 again this uh reflects the utility of this analytic framework is that it it functions in ways that don't necessarily match up with I guess the political economy of music consumption in in that like thinking about um Bandcamp, you know, which is which is attempts to send more of the money and kind of pitches itself as, as being far more equitable to the artists. In addition to being able to buy a physical album, one of the things it does is allow you to buy a digital album, which you can then stream forever on the Bandcamp app, which sends more money to a musician, but again, is actually probably functionally no different. Um, maybe if an economy a scale function, functionally more um, energy consumptive than streaming it through. Spotify, and that both of these need to be thought of as all of this needs to be thought of as engaging and consuming um again, this this physical commodity chain,
2: yeah, I mean i i I think that that way of thinking about things opens up important important questions. Now, you know music again is is recorded music again. here is a drop in the bucket you know, this is another reaction that, that often I get to the research Is people say, ah, you know, focus on something serious. Um, you know, look at the concrete industry or the airline industry. We hate those like people, people on this podcast. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but I understand the reaction, right? Um, but I guess, I mean, for me, you know, if this hap- if music if, and recorded music happens to be a little slice of the world that that I'm involved in and I care or we care a particular amount about, you know, I don't think it should matter necessarily that it isn't as significant a contributor as the concrete industry, the airline industry, or you know, even Netflix online or, or spam email or whatever. And the reason is is that. The reason is that music is wrapped up in those same systems of desiring and expecting that our understanding of, of betterness only hinges on the possibility of moreness. Right? So music, you know, now that we can have billions of, of songs and we can stream them all the time, um, you know that isn't i think that, that there's a there's a deep cultural connection there at least in in parts of the global north you know that is the same problem driving you know concrete emissions and airline travel and plastics pollution and things and things like this but i also i also don't think again that this this that talking about these things should lead us toward necessarily clamping down on our own consumption habits or developing guilt and shame for buying records and things like that. I think uh, there's a, there's a Canadian scholar that that I really admire called Max Liboiron and she's in a, a short documentary called guts. And at the beginning of the documentary, you know, they, they sort of, she, she does um, she leads a, a citizen science research center on uh, ocean plastics pollution research. And she's she's in this documentary, and they kind of ask her, what what needs to be done about plastics pollution? And she says, well, the first thing to know is that your individual consumption of plastic bags doesn't matter. She says it doesn't matter if you reuse your old plastic bags or bring a – bring a woolen woven bag to the grocery store with you she says you know those things really matter at, on a level of, of personal ethics and you know those, those things can make a difference for how you negotiate your own path through this pro- problematic world and she says but but it's just at the scale of a problem it's it's nothing and, and you know if you want to address the bigger problem, you have to address the, the production side of things. And if you want to address that side of things, she says basically what it comes down to is if you want to reduce ocean plastics pollution, you have to regulate the oil industry. Not make consumers feel as though they're, they're making a great difference in the world by not using plastic bags or something. I think that's a bit of sleight but of hand. I,
1: again, at, at the same time, I mean, I think... One of the things that I, I think a lot about um, on the show and we, we think a lot about on the show are, is the way in which and maybe this kind of goes against the anti-romanticism of, of a lot of this book is that I do believe that as much as music is just another commodity, that music <laughs> simultaneously and in complete opposition to that previous statement is not just another commodity that here I'm thinking with like a Tully and noise or, or um, you know the idea that 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 this is a particularly privileged site, I think, music is for social formation and 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 cultural thought and and cultural interaction. Um, and so it seems to me that you know in, in the, uh, more, a deeper interaction with the ecology of music and the political ecology of music. In a space like music, music might be a very tiny slice of this world, but it's very important for how a lot of people think about the world and understand themselves in the world. And it seems to me that changing things about music has in the past echoed out into broader changes in all, all kinds of complicated ways. It's not obviously like a one for one change. But I, I do think it, it's, it's a particularly important space of um, understanding and action.
2: I, I would never deny that that of course music can be those things. For me, it's most possible to to come back to those slightly more romanticized notions of what music offers in this world. Once you know, I've I've gone through the process of writing this book and and looking at all of this ugly business um, that that really defines music, and I think yeah, to, to only look at the romantic side of it would would uh, would just be hugely problematic and, and uh, hypocritical, maybe. But, but yeah, I think if, if I'm going to talk about p- possible special roles for music in the world in terms of understanding or connection, I want to have, you know, my other line of sight firmly on the ways that music, even when it is connecting us or carrying a positive message about social change, you know, is, is carrying that message, you know, through a commodity system that, you know, comes with a lot of problems and big questions. Yeah.
1: And I think the, the kind of clearest example of that, and just to kind of wrap up is also um, is the focus on, you know, the the title of the book is decomposition and, and the focus on music as commodities that go through a complete life cycle that, even the best tended vinyl record and certainly all the CDs in about 10 years are going to die and they're going to become waste. And in some ways they, they're maybe they're they're most physical as waste in some ways or most obviously physical.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's well worth keeping in mind. I mean, um, there are people who've done really great research on plastic water bottles. Um, And, and they're, they are called, they're objects that are made to be wasted. They're literally made to be thrown out immediately after use, um, like many objects, but, but even with something like a CD or a cassette or a record or a 45, which isn't technically made to be wasted. And even though, you know, I mean, I have a box of CDs behind me here in my office that I moved to. Norway with five years ago and I've never opened (laughs) you know boxes of them and and I think you're right that this you know this stuff yeah in a sense is most physical when it becomes waste Um, and that that aspect of that sort of fuller life cycle that fuller sort of end end view of what will happen to most CDs and most records even though like me, many people can't part with them, even if they just sit around. Um, but eventually, they're they're going to go to probably a dump somewhere, and that's worth worth having in mind as we as we maybe go back to a slightly more romantic and politicized conception of music as a means of connection or or a form of um, getting messages out there about trying to change the world around us.
1: Absolutely, and and you, I, I do think that that word you used before, hypocritical, I find that really useful. You have you have a phrase in the book, slow violence, right? That it's not that that these things do damage to the world, and that almost maybe a maybe I'm riffing a little bit, but that a more ethical consumption, even if you can't and you shouldn't, like you said, you're not trying to warn anyone off of listening to music, but just plugging our ears or maybe like turning up the volume and pretending that that stuff isn't happening is hypocritical especially if we can know
2: yeah i think so the, the phrase slow violence is from a, a literary scholar called uh, rob nixon i believe it's rob nixon uh it's a book from called slow violence in the environmentalism of the poor and the idea is that yes violence is is striking someone or dropping a bomb But there have been these much more sort of protracted long term ways of doing violence toward other places and other other cultures, you know, extractivism and and colonialism and and things like this, which are which are distant forms of violence and delayed uh, long term forms of violence that don't appear right in front of your eyes or they're not spectacular, like you'd see a bomb being dropped on the news. But on some level, these are equally and maybe even in some cases more profound and more affecting forms of violence. And, and you know, music, recorded music and, and other forms of music as well are, are wrapped up in those things, too. And, yeah, I would just, I would, for me, I would prefer to know about those things and to have a, keep my eye on them. And I, I would much rather do that than sort of look the other way. And or as you really nicely put it, just kind of like put my headphones on, turn the volume up and bliss out or whatever.
1: Somehow know? the romanticization of music makes us less interested in thinking of it as a commodity. Like in my head, I had also, I kind of thought vinyl was like plastic, but different, which obviously makes no sense.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I think what you say there is, is really, really important. and And I, you know, almost for me, one of the, one of the most special things that music is able to do nearly better than anything else I can think of is conceal the fact that, you know, it has conditions of production that go, that extend far beyond, you know, the symphony on the stage or the musician in the studio or the person buying and listening to a record. Like music seems to be really especially good at, at, uh, you know, allowing people to forget that.
1: I think that that's about all for now. I just want to thank you again for spending the time to talk. The book is called Decomposed, The Political Ecology of Music out MIT Press. It's a commodity well worth invoking a commodity chain to obtain. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
2: Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I, it's always completely humbling when when people read the book and reach out to talk about it so i'm i'm really grateful and i really admire your uh, way of describing the book as a commodity that is well worth invoking a commodity chain to obtain i think uh, i think that should be written on the back of the next uh, the next edition <laughs>